L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Oh, hello and welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am that host of yours, the one with all the feminism. Liv. I don't know how many of you caught my latest Instagram reel, a dramatic reading of a one-star review. But my gods, it had to be one of the funniest and most ridiculous reviews I've ever gotten from an angry man who doesn't want to believe the patriarchy exists. And now, well, now I'm just coasting off the high of making a man quite so angry with all my horrible feminism. <laughs> Fucking love it. Still, it was a one-star review, and it does affect my rating. So, I mean, if anyone feels like offsetting it with a five-star, I mean, I wouldn't be mad. And do you know what is the perfect thing to do when I receive such nonsensical feedback from a man who's angry that I dared suggest a woman could do even one of the things that Heracles did? <sighs> well... I think that uh, I share with you a little bit of the brand new translation of Ovid's Metamorphoses by a woman. I have mentioned it before, and on Friday you will hear a very special episode all about this. But as of today, you can buy Ovid's Metamorphoses, translated by Stephanie McCarter. This is the first translation by a woman in over 60 years, and do you know what that means? It means a legitimately more accurate translation, one that is consciously aware of biases and working through them, one that is explicitly translating women and gender non-conforming characters with care and attention. What a fucking concept. And honestly, I think Ovid is the absolute perfect writer for this. He clearly cared about examining women's emotions and feelings, like their very existence as human beings, in a way that few other ancient authors did. He may have talked a lot about their assault, but he did it with attention and empathy versus just like making horrible statements. I cannot wait for you all to hear this conversation I had with Stephanie. It's coming out on Friday. Like I said, it it was 
so incredible hearing how she went about this translation, the things she thought about and what she was trying to do. <gasps> we talked about the women, about what other translators have done in the past and why she wanted to do something different. We talked about the varied trans characters of Ovid and how their stories were handled. Oh, it's so good. And this translation is so exciting to me and I want to share it with you all so badly that, do you know what? I actually paid her publisher so that I could read a section for you. Like, this is so not an ad that I personally actually gave them money because I am such an enormous nerd for this book. <laughs> I'm always talking about why I can only just read public domain translations. I'm like, this is why. But in this case, I just couldn't resist. So I'm going to start today's episode off with a reading of, yes, Arachne's story. Arachne and her web of divine crimes against women. Arachne as translated by Stephanie McCarter. It's a short reading, only like 10 minutes, and then we will dive into the episode itself. But you just know I could not resist bringing you this new form of Arachne. When she had finished listening, Minerva endorsed the muses' songs and righteous wrath. It's not enough to praise, she thought. Let me be praised and crush whoever scorns my power. She sets her mind on punishing Arachne, a Lydian girl who would not grant to her, she'd heard, the first prize in the art of woolwork. This girl had won acclaim not for her birthplace or family, but for art. Her father, Idmon of Colophon, stained thirsty wool with purple Phocaean dye. Her mother was deceased. Her parents both were plebes. Yet for her skill she'd gained celebrity through Lydia's towns, though raised in a small home in small Hypepa. To see her wondrous work, the nymphs who live in Tmolus often left behind their thickets. The nymphs of the Pactolus left their streams, they liked to see not just the finished cloth, but its creation, too. Her art possessed such loveliness. Whether she wound the rough wool into spheres or worked it with her fingers until it softened like a cloud or turned the rounded spindle with her agile thumb or painted with her spool, you would just know that Pallas taught her. She denies this, though, and, and irked to be aligned with such a teacher, says, Let her vie with me. I have no reason to lose by backing down. Minerva feigns the looks of an old woman, lining her temples with fake white hair and holding up her feeble limbs with a walking stick. She tells Arachne, Let's not reject all things that come with age. Late years bring wisdom. Do not scorn my counsel. Among your fellow mortals seek renown for woolwork. Reckless girl, yield to the goddess. Ask her in supplicating tones to pardon your words. She'll grant you pardon if you ask. Arachne glares at her and leaves her threads half-spun. She barely can hold back her hand. Wearing her anger on her face, she answers disguised Minerva with these words. 
You're mad. You've lived too long. Senility has wrecked you. Go tell this to your son's wife or your daughter. I take my own advice. Don't think your warnings have had an impact. I've not changed my mind. Why not come here herself? Why shirk this contest? She has come, said the goddess, who removed her aged form, showing herself as Pallas. The nymphs and Lydian women bowed before her might. Only the virgin was undaunted. But she did blush. Against her will, a blush suddenly stained her face, then disappeared like air that reddens in the early dawn and quickly brightens when the sun comes up. Still, she persists. Her foolish need to win speeds her to doom. Jove's child does not back down, nor further warn her, nor postpone the contest. At once they set up matching looms that face each other. Then they stretch the warp across the frame and tie it to the crossbeam, using a reed to space its threads. With their sharp shuttles they weave the weft thread in and out, then pull it tight with their fingers. When it's winded through, they tap it with a notch-toothed comb to pack it. Their tunics belted to their chest, they move their skilled arms quickly back and forth, their toil forgotten in the thrill. They weave in purple dyed in a Tyrian vat and subtle shades in slightly graded hues, just like a rainbow when drizzle strikes the sunlight and its arc stains the wide sky. A thousand colors shine in it, but their transitions fool the eye, looking the same where touching, but with edges in different colors. They add stiff gold thread and weave into the fabric ancient tales. Pallas depicts the Rock of Mars in Athens and the old contest for the city's name. Twelve gods sit high on thrones in august grandeur, Jove in their midst. Each god is clearly marked by their appearance. Jove looks like a king. She makes the sea god stand and strike his trident against rough rock. The wounded rock shoots out salt water. With this pledge, he claims the city. She gives herself a shield and sharp-tipped spear and helmet, and her aegis guards her chest. She shows the earth, struck by her spear, put forth an olive tree replete with fruit. The gods are awed. The scene ends in her victory. To help her rival know what prize she'll win for such wild daring, she provides examples— in the four corners she depicts four contests, each colorful and decked with little figures. One section shows the Thracians Rhodope and Hemus, now cold peaks, once human bodies. They called each other by the chief gods' names. Another shows the pygmy mother's doom. She lost a match to Juno, who transformed her into a crane that wars against its people. And she depicts Antigone, who dared contend with great Jove's wife. Queen Juno changed her into a bird. Not Ilium nor her father Laomedon could save her. White with feathers, she hails herself with her loud beak, a stork. Last, she portrays now childless Kinneras, who hugs the temple steps, her daughter's limbs, and seems to weep, reclining on the stone. She adds one final detail, peaceful olive around the hem, 
Her tree concludes the work. Arachne weaves Europa when the bull's form tricked her. You would think the bull and sea were real. She seems to gaze back at the land, to call her friends, to draw her feet away from leaping waves whose touch she fears. She shows Asteri gripped by a grappling eagle and Leda prone beneath swan wings. She adds how Jove, cloaked by a satyr's form, filled lovely Antiope with twins. How he took you, Alcmena, as Amphitryon. How he tricked Danae as gold, Aina as fire, Mnemosyne as a shepherd, and the daughter of Ceres as a dappled snake. She put you, Neptune, changed into a savage bull atop the virgin child of Aeolus. You father the Aloidae as Anippius, and as a ram you trick Theophany. The gentle, wheat-haired mother of the crops feels you in horse form. She who bore the flying steed feels your bird form, and Melantho feels your dolphin form. She gives them their true looks, even the places. Phoebus is there, too, in rustic guise. He now sports hawk wings, now a lion's skin. She renders how he tricked Amphissa as a shepherd, and how Liber beguiled Erigone with phony grapes, how Saturn as a horse sired two-formed Chiron. The fabric's hem, lined with a slender border, has flowers intertwined with tendrilled ivy. Pallas can't criticize Arachne's work, not even envy could. The warrior goddess with amber hair is pained by her success and shreds the tapestry that shows God's crimes. Then, with the boxwood shuttle in her hand, she three, then four times strikes Arachne's brow. The wretched girl can't bear this, and she ties a noose to her proud throat. But as she hangs, Minerva pities her and takes her down. Live, wicked girl, she says, yet hang. To make you fear the future, too, this punishment will be inherited by your whole line. Then she withdraws, splashing her with the juice of Hecatean drugs. Touched by that loathsome poison, her hair and nose and ears fall off. Her head grows tiny, her whole body shrinks. The rest is belly, from which she, a spider, shoots out a thread to work her ancient webs. Selections read from Metamorphoses by Ovid and translated by Stephanie McCarter. Published by Penguin Classics, an imprint of Penguin Random House, LLC. The unabridged audio recording narrated by Bonnie Turpin is published by Ground Cherry Press. Available at Audible at other major online audiobook retailers and to borrow at public libraries. <sighs> Wasn't that just amazing it makes me want to fully like revisit the story of arachne just all over again let alone the one of medusa oh my god i did that episode so many years ago now you guys like i can't i can't even believe it i've everything about me has changed anyway my heart aches uh for that story but now back to our regular programming so spooky season is quite sadly over but what are we diving into next 
Well, we are revisiting my favorite city on the Greek mainland for mythological purposes, that is. That's right. We're traveling back to the one and only Thebes. I recently spoke with an expert on Thebes, an episode that will come out in a little bit um, once we've covered some of the more of the city's mythology. But that chat was so fascinating and really inspired me to return to this mythological place. Not to mention last Friday's reading episode of The Metamorphosis, which also covered some of this cursed family. Ugh. But I digress. So back in, what, was it May? I told you the story of Cadmus and Harmonia again, but in much more detail. They've always fascinated me for so many reasons, like not least because I've been trying to write a novel about them for a decade. Uh, but as characters, they are so unique. This Phoenician hero, this non-Greek who travels to Greece in search of his sister Europa, but is forced to give up because she's been taken by the king of these foreign gods. Instead, he ends up traveling to found a seemingly random city on the mainland, marrying a literal goddess and founding a dynasty. And then, I mean, that goddess, like, fuck, Harmonia is the child of Olympians, Aphrodite and Ares, and yet this is her entire story. She marries Cadmus and seemingly lives happily as a mortal until they're both turned into snakes by her own father. And it's not a punishment. It's actually a gift. And oh, my God. Anyway, uh, that episode was pretty recently. That was my brief, weird and quick recap before we get into, hmm their cursed line of children and grandchildren and so on. This is episode 187, Far Too Much Dismemberment, The Cursed Legacy of Thebes. It's the children of Cadmus and Harmonia who we're concerned with today. Two of them, particularly. But the children of Cadmus and Harmonia are four daughters. I know, Semele, Agawe, and Atanui, and one son, Polydorus. Many of these names are probably familiar by now. I've told stories of them before, gone into some of the sourcing on the more cursed aspects of their future, but I don't think I've ever detailed the breadth and just how interconnected this line of Thebes really is. So we're starting that today. One of the other things that's quite unique about this family in Thebes is just how ancient their story is. That Cadmus and Harmonia marry, found the city of Thebes, and then have these specific five children exists at least as far back as Hesiod, something that cannot be said for a huge number of more popular myths. There are no variations on who their children are or their names whatsoever. Similarly, the details of Semele exist in Homer, so even further back, with allusions to Thebes, suggesting her as the daughter of Cadmus and Harmonia, as far back as Homer. Is all of this super important to the story? No, but it's fascinating. You all know me. Basically, the cursed as all hell family is ancient as all hell too. As to their stories, let's start with I know. I know that, I can't believe I said that word right after her name, but I know that in my episode on Cadmus and Harmonia, I mentioned the ultimate fate of their daughter, I know, that she's eventually transformed into a sea goddess called Leucothea. But there is a bit that happens in between. I know is an interesting character because there's a major story that she may or may not actually be a part of. 
that she's the daughter of Cadmus and Harmonia, a princess of Thebes who eventually marries someone named Athamas is always the case. But what happens with Athamas and even who Athamas is in the wider mythology varies a lot. Aino and her Athamas have two sons, Lercos and Melikertes. Meanwhile, Athamas might also have already had two children with another woman, a goddess named Nephili. Those children are the more famous, a son, Phrixus, and a daughter, Heli. The best way to describe these two possibilities for Aino is that in one, she is a straight-up bad guy, and in the other, she is simply lacking much story to begin with. Though, I will admit, by all accounts, Aino seems to inhabit the curse of her family in a way that the others don't. She does the bad things versus the bad things happening to her. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Not least because this story is ridiculously difficult to tell in any kind of coherent way, and I'm just struggling through it. The stories of her sisters are, are far more straightforward, but you all know I'm incapable of leaving anything out. So, Athamas and Aino are married. For our purposes today, we're going to imagine the version where Athamas already has two children with another woman. Those two children, Phrixus and Heli. And in this take, Aino inhabits this role of stepmother. See, the confusion comes in because there very well could have been two Athamases. We know Aino marries one and had children with him and that further tragedies do happen to them later, which I will go into. But we also know of an Athamas who had these famous children, Phrixus and Heli, who had to deal with an unnamed stepmother. So is Aino the stepmother or is she not? That's where the big question mark arises. For the sake of story, though, we're going to trust that Aino is indeed, at least in this version, this unnamed stepmother. Ever wondered how far back the trope of an evil stepmother goes? Because it's at least as far back as this story. Once she's married Athamas, it seems she immediately has it out for his existing children. We get no background on this, no reasoning for why. If we're to understand the stepmother as I know, though, it seems to reason that this is part of the curse that will go on to affect all of her siblings and their children for many generations to come. Regardless, Aino becomes hell-bent on getting rid of Athamas's children. The first step she takes is to convince the women of the region to ruin their chances of growing grain. Apparently, specifically to quote-unquote parch the grain before it's sown. But I don't know why I have to keep reminding you all. I am not a farmer. And thus, we will assume that this plan is something that works, because it seems to. Things get so bad that Athamas sends someone to the Oracle of Delphi to sort out what it is they need to do in order to fix their crops. Does it sound a bit familiar? Don't worry, Oedipus is absolutely part of this Theban dynasty, but the story isn't as familiar as it sounds. See, in this, there is no cryptic oracle to contend with, no baffling statement that leaves tragedy in its wake. In this case, Aino bribes the messenger to simply lie. The messenger tells Athamas that the oracle told him that the only way to save their land and their crops from whatever it is that's causing such trouble is to sacrifice Phrixus. Now, this is when I remind you just how rare human sacrifice is in Greek mythology. It is not a thing. In fact, the only example I can ever think of of it actually happening explicitly in a myth is the story of Iphigenia being sacrificed by Agamemnon. And even that story often has Iphigenia saved at, by a god at the last minute. So this inclusion of not only the suggestion of human sacrifice, but human sacrifice instigated by some evil stepmother figure is super weird and interesting. <laughs> Honestly, I would probably have left out this whole bit, save for the important result of their story. 
I don't really think it fits with Aino, and it certainly isn't explicit that she is actually this evil stepmother until very late sources that squish all these ideas together. But I just like this Theban family a bit too much and have to tell you everything. So Athamas is told that the only way to save his city from starvation and worse is to sacrifice his own son, Phyrexus, and to sacrifice him to Zeus, of all people. Ugh, weird. Athamas, though, he refuses. He's no Agamemnon. But Phrixus hears this false oracle and determines that if his father won't instigate the sacrifice to save the region, then he'll do it himself. So Phrixus plans to sacrifice himself to Zeus. But as he stands there at the altar, about to be put to death for a false oracle for no reason at all, his mother, the goddess Nephili, sends something very, very divine and specific to save him and his sister Heli from the sacrifice and the evil stepmother trope. She sends the golden fleece, or rather the golden ram. That's right. Nephili sends a flying golden ram to whisk away her children from this sacrificial altar. A ram, and it's gold, and it flies. <laughs> because mythology. So off Phrixus and Helia go. They're flying on this very cool and fancy golden ram that, yes, will absolutely go on to be the golden fleece of Jason and Medea's exploits. But by then, the animal isn't alive. Now it's alive and, and flying. It whisks off the two and flies them over the Mediterranean, away from Boeotia and towards, well, the east, I guess, where it will eventually end up in Colchis, though it's not clear where they're heading in the moment. It's only clear that, eventually, poor Helle slips off the back of this golden ram as it flies, and she falls. She falls into the sea, and where she falls takes her name, becomes the Hellespont, now called the Dardanelles, the little strip of land in Turkey that connects Europe to Asia. And I know? Well... Again, most of these details that link Aino explicitly to this story, rather than some unnamed stepmother, are two late sources, Pseudo-Hygienus and Pseudo-Apollodorus. These are two mythographers from about the 2nd century CE, so they're writing deep into the Roman period and are entirely influenced by a million other myths and stories that have been developed by that time and many that they had access to that we don't. It's most obvious in the Hyginus myth, which includes a reference to Liber, a very late and very Roman version of Dionysus, who is much more of like a god figure in the modern sense, rather than the Dionysus we know from Greek myth. That is all to say, it, it's confusing, and I love talking about it. Hyginus finishes this story of Aino by describing Athamas's revenge on her for what she did to his children, how he tried to throw her and their son, Melikertes, into the sea for what Aino did, and how at the very last minute, Aino's nephew, Dionysus, or Liber, as Hyginus calls him, saves her and their son and transforms them into sea deities. And that is how Aino becomes known as Leucothea. But also, there's an entirely different story of Aino that's found in our dearly beloved Ovid's Metamorphoses. But... Before we get to that version, we have to pull ourselves back in time just a little bit and look into how exactly it is that Aino had such a divine nephew to begin with. So let's return to my beloved city of Thebes and tell the story of Aino's sister, 
Semele. LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. The story of Semele and Zeus is one of the few stories featuring the god where, well, it's kind of hard to actually figure out how any of them might have felt. The sources often say that Zeus fell in love with Semele. But then, don't they always say that when Zeus was with a woman that wasn't Hera? Still, in this case, I'm close to believing it. Or rather, believing that Zeus believed he was in love with Semele, and that he acted accordingly. But I'm getting ahead of myself. They say that Zeus fell in love with Semele, one of the daughters of Cadmus and Harmonia, and a princess of Thebes. Semele, meanwhile, seems to have fallen in love right back. That, in itself, is refreshing, isn't it? Could I go into the power dynamics, etc., etc., that make this still not something we should see as a romantic relationship and unproblematic? Of course I could, but you get the idea. Zeus used to visit Semele in disguise, appearing to her as, as human as he could muster, but still being very clear to his new love that he was, indeed, the king of the gods, Zeus. Unsurprisingly, he could never pass up an opportunity to make himself sound impressive. So while he appeared in the form of a mortal-ish, he spent an awful lot of time explaining to Semele that he was Zeus. For sure. No, definitely he's Zeus. Like, for real. And before long, because he is Zeus, Semele got pregnant. They always do. This is when Hera found out about their relationship, and most importantly, found out that Semele was pregnant. This story 
is best told in Ovid's Metamorphoses, so you just know I'm using this new translation. Stephanie also spoke at length in our episode about how she handled Juno, Hera, which is so fascinating. Essentially, this is a woman whose power is threatened by Zeus's infidelity, rather than a woman expressing her stereotypically female jealousy. But we'll get into that in that conversation episode. Even still, all of that aside, Hera is still Hera. So this section begins, quote, But look, a fresh excuse for wrath. (sighs) Yeah, I love this translation. When Hera finds out that Semele is pregnant, she doesn't see a woman who's just slept with her husband. She sees a woman who is carrying a child by the king of the gods, and therefore a woman and child who threaten Hera's space on Mount Olympus, her power as the queen. Essentially all the power she holds in the world. And that makes her angry, and probably scared. Hera disguises herself as an old woman and visits Semele down in Thebes. Specifically, a woman who was an old nurse of Semele's, a woman from Epidavros who she would already trust. So Semele is immediately comfortable with her and they get to talking. They talk for hours about everything. And eventually, when Semele is really, truly comfy, she brings up Zeus's name, or Jove, in Ovid, the father of her unborn child. Hera, in her disguise, begins to plant the seeds of doubt. Quote, I hope it's Jove, sighed Juno, but the whole thing is scary. Many men have used God's names to enter virgins' beds. It isn't hard for Semele to become uncertain. I mean, Hera's right. I'm sure if you're living in a world where all the heroes and others are born of random encounters with gods, I can certainly imagine men pretending to be gods in order to sleep with women. It sounds like something men would do today. I mean, maybe less per- less pretending to be deities specifically. Regardless, Zamily does become worried that maybe this man is lying to her. Maybe he isn't Zeus. I mean, she has no proof and it's pretty weird. So she listens as Hera tells her that she has to be certain that she must make him prove himself to her. She must ask him if Zeus is Zeus, like he says, to show her, to appear to her as he would appear to his own wife on Olympus. And then she'll know for sure that he is who he says he is. So Semele does just this. She listens to Hera in disguise, she works herself up into worry, and so the next time she sees Zeus, she asks him if he'll do something for her. Anything, he promises. And this is why I think maybe he's actually in love, or thinks that he is. Anything. He promised anything. So she asks him for what she wants. Quote, Come to me in that form you have when wrapped in Juno's arms as you make love. So specific, Semele, so inadvertently dangerous. Zeus immediately realizes what he's done. He has promised her anything, and that anything is a bad idea. Now, when I told you all this story originally, (laughs) five years ago, I know I had a lot to say about Zeus going through with this ask, even though he knows that it will almost certainly cause Semele's death. But, well, I don't know. I think I've come around at least a little bit. See, there's this thing amongst the gods and the Greeks broadly. You do not back out of promises or oaths. 
oaths quite specifically. They are sacred as all hell. So even this little promise of anything becomes an oath sworn by Zeus and is therefore, particularly to gods, unbreakable. Now, should he have promised her anything? No. <laughs> should he have just maybe asked what she wanted first or given a bit more of like an ambiguous agreement? Yes. Still, it seems once the promise has been made, there's no backing out of it. And you all know it gives me no pleasure to excuse anything about Zeus, but the context is important, and I love the historical context of ancient Greece and its mythology more than I love to hate Zeus. And it hurts me too. So when Semele has let out those words of request, Zeus immediately realizes the mistake he's made. And to his credit, he really regrets it. Quote, he groaned. She can't unwish. He can't unswear. So in his explicit grief, Zeus travels up to Mount Olympus to put himself together. He collects mists together around him and, quote, adds in rain and thunder and his inexorable lightning bolt. But even as he does this, he tries to counter some of his strength. He tries to fulfill his oath with as little power as he can manage. He tries to do as little damage as possible when he reappears to Semele. He leaves his powerful thunderbolt at home, the one that destroyed Typhaeus, that reigned in the Hecatonchires. That one was too dangerous. So he takes his backup, his smallest, most insignificant lightning bolt. Gods, how am I actually feeling a bit for Zeus here? It is... It's the translation. Stephanie, what have you done to me? Of course, none of this matters. It doesn't matter how much Zeus tried to temper his divine power to save Semele, because divinity is divinity, particularly when you're a wielder of literal lightning bolts. So, quote, Her mortal body cannot bear this storm from heaven. She is torched by bridal gifts. Semele is killed by Zeus's lightning, but she is still pregnant. So Zeus removes the baby, soon to be Dionysus, from his mother and he sews him into his own thigh where the baby can continue to gestate. And eventually, Zeus himself gives birth to Dionysus. There are countless stories about where exactly Dionysus was raised. It's like the stories of Heracles and even Zeus's time as a baby. Really, every region of the Greek world wanted to claim some association with this young, new god. Or rather, this child form of a god that is very, very old. So, was he raised on Evia, Naxos, in Sparta maybe, or even Phrygia in the east? The most common and reasonable, based on the rest of his story, is that he's raised in Nyssa, in Boeotia, near Mount Kitheron, a mountain that will become much more famous in the play Bacchae, where a yet-to-be-born cousin will be torn apart by the remaining princesses of Thebes. Before that, though, he's raised in Nyssa, either by nymphs or even his aunts, 
all three sometimes, Aino, Itanui, and Agawe, these women leaving their lives behind to raise the child of their lost sister. Regardless of the options, it's Aino who gets the most fame for raising her nephew, Dionysus. And it's Aino who has this work in her favor after all that I told you about her, her maybe stepchildren. So to finish off today's episode, we're returning to the story of Aino, which, again, is best told in Ovid's version, or certainly it's the most detailed and beautiful take. And it's a reason for me to continue using this translation. Because, well, Hera looks down at Aino, who, in this version, were to believe, did not partake in any of the evil stepmother bits, just took part in the raising of Dionysus as a baby which still makes her ripe for Hera's wrath. It seems, though, Hera is most angry with Dionysus, but like Zeus, she can't punish him as easily as she can punish the woman who raised him. Still, as much as Hera is keen to punish Aino, she also wants to get rid of Aino's husband, Athamas. Hera wants so badly to punish Aino and Athamas that she travels to the underworld itself, and she speaks with one of the Renways, the Furies, in order to exact her revenge. And it is, oh my gods, it's so incredible, this translation, I can't even fully express it to you. Like, she speaks to the Furies and explains what she wants, and one of them, Tisiphone, quote, flipped back her wild gray hair to toss the snakes out of her face and said, there's no need to ramble on, consider your orders done. She fucking flipped the snakes out of her hair. I cannot handle this. Having done this, Hera returns to Olympus where she'll watch it all go down, this punishment on Aino. But not before she's purified by Iris, who sprinkles raindrops on her to clean off all of that underworld gore. And then, yeah, we're quoting again because, uh, quote, Heinous Tisiphone at once takes up a blood-soaked torch and dons a cloak stained red with gore, belting a twisted snake around it. She uses a snake as a belt because she's one of the Furies. So in the most badass and incredible and violent and weird of ways, the Furies travel to Aino and Athamas's palace to, well terrorize them on behalf of Hera. Tisiphone blocks the entryway so that Aino and Athamas cannot escape, and, quote, she raised her arms entwined with knotted snakes and shook her hair. This movement stirred the vipers. Some slither round her shoulders, some her chest. They flick their tongues, hissing and spewing venom. I've, I've got to cool it on the quotes, but I just... I can't resist. Whew. Anyway, Tisiphone takes two of the vipers from her hair and she literally throws them at Aino and Athamas because she's amazing and I love her. Tisiphone continues, using everything at her disposal to terrorize the couple. She has spit from Cerberus, venom from the Hydra, mental illness, and more. She has everything horrifying and awful and she stirs them all together in a cauldron to use against Aino and Athamas all on behalf of Hera. In the end, what she does is drive Athamas into madness. He becomes convinced that there is a lioness and cubs to hunt in the forests outside their palace, so he pulls all his men together to hunt them. 
Except that's not what they are. Think Bacchae. Athamas hunts his own wife, Ino, and their two children, Lercos and Malerkes. He and his men kill the baby Lercos first. Horribly, tragically, just awfully. And Ino watches it all. And it's either this or it could be Tisiphone's poisons too, but she is driven into a state of madness and she rages around, holding on tightly to Melicarates in grief and horror and calling out praise to Bacchus. A frenzy. She's like a maenad, like her sisters are going to do to her own nephew Pentheus when Bacchus will return to Thebes. And before long, she races to a cliffside, still holding on to Melicertes, and she throws herself and the baby off the cliff and into the sea. But she's not abandoned by the gods. Her grandmother, Aphrodite, takes pity on Ino, knowing none of this is her fault. She has Poseidon transform her and Melicertes into sea gods. They become the goddess Lakothui, and he becomes Palaimon, and they are immortal, living in the sea, far from Hera's wrath. Oh, nerds. Thank you so much for listening. Today's episode was extra exciting. I really can't express how keen I was to do that reading from Stephanie's translation of Metamorphoses. I am being entirely honest when I say that I've been waiting not at all patiently for about a year just for this translation, because God, the translation of Ovid by a woman, I, I just have no words. It's fucking huge. So honestly, and again, no one is paying me to say this, but if you have the means and you're interested in Ovid, go buy yourself a copy of this translation. You will thank me. Just a note, though, I did learn it's not out in the UK yet until a couple months from now, sometime in the new year, but North America can get it wherever you get your books. It's published by Penguin, which means it's not academic and therefore, again, everywhere. Another perk. Anyway, we'll stop ranting about this now. I mean, until, you know, Friday's episode when I speak with Stephanie all about it. <laughs> Since I started the show with a brief rant about a dick who left me a ridiculously misogynist one-star review, I'll end it how I always do, by reading your lovely five-star reviews. Make sure you log on to Apple Podcasts to leave me one, and maybe I'll read it too. This one is from Aster Griffins in the US. Love this show. This podcast is a wonderful, accessible feminist take on Greek mythology that makes me smile every time. Lives bubbly personality and passion about the topics she covers really shows. If you're looking for a fun, feminist way to interact with mythology, look no further. Thank you so much. I really, it, it means everything to me. I love reading these. They make my day. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things. Like, she's truly indispensable. Couldn't do it without her at this point. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek myth and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron, where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. You are all magnificent. I am living. Have I mentioned how much I love Ovid? I mean, he's really the only Roman worth any time. Just don't tell the Romanists I said that. I love this shit. LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. 
One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on do not disturb, tuning out all the constant just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store.